So I have this friend who said to me recently, and, and actually I, I hear him say this all the time. I've heard him say this quite a few occasions. I don't do anything on my own. I don't do anything uh, without my father telling me that I need to do it. I don't do anything that I don't see him doing. I don't do anything that he wants me to do. I've heard this friend of mine say this innumerable times. Now, how does that land on you, those words? You're likely thinking at this point, your friend needs to grow up. Your friend's not terribly mature. Your friend, he would do well to put a little distance between him and his dad because clearly there's some issues there. Your friend needs to develop some independency in his life. I get that. Um, would it make any difference to you if I told you who my friend was and who said these words? John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is showing us that his is very much a life of complete and utter dependency upon his Father. And he's also showing us, if we have but ears to hear, that this is what it means to follow him, to live a life of dependency, to be completely dependent upon his Father. That's what maturity actually looks like. Not independence, but complete and utter dependence. Now, just as a true full disclosure, uh, that little trick I just pulled on you, Paul Miller, uh, The Praying Life, I believe is where I, I got that. Um, he's absolutely right in speaking to us in that way, and that this is how our friend, the best friend that we could have, speaks to us and what he models for us and enables us to do. Well, that takes us into this ongoing series, though, through the book of Judges, uh, because that's exactly what we're seeing here uh, in this historical moment in the life of Israel, God working with his people, this concept, this idea, this principle of our needing to be ever dependent upon the Lord in any and everything and all the time, that's exactly what we see here in Judges chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me now. Uh, it's on the screen there. Uh, we're going to be just reading the whole chapter, chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. This is in the Old Testament. This is after the first five books of Moses. And after you see the book of Joshua, you hit the book of Judges. Judges. And uh, we are in Judges 7, continuing on where we left off uh, with talking about this guy named Gideon. Last week, that was in chapter 6 kind of the first big introduction to him and his 
his place in Israel's history. But we continue on now in chapter 7, picking up in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he Worshipped, And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle march when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 
And the army fled as far as Beit Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mechalah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Well, perhaps we should pray. So if you'd uh, bow your head now with me, let's uh, do that and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time. Jesus, thank you for not only what you did that day there in that battle, how you showed yourself, but then preserving, preserving the record such that we could read of it here now this morning, all these years later, all these many miles removed. Uh, thank you. Thank you for just these few minutes that we have here uh, at the start of the week, here in this morning, uh, to be in your word together. Uh, we, ple we plead with you, uh, we ask of you, and we know that you are glad to hear such requests. Lord, would you show us more of yourself? Would you form and reform our hearts? Would you make us truly followers of you? Uh, thank you. Thank you for this time, and we pray now for you to do the deep teaching, the deep work that is needed here. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I don't usually follow up an illustration from one week to another the way I'm about to, but I couldn't resist. Last week, I talked about Star Wars as one of the great modern myths and how in that, uh, because of that, there are many truths, true truths, that we can learn given its abiding significance in, in so many different respects. Um, so here's, here's a, a, a truism a proverbial nugget that you can carry away, at least from the original trilogy. And by that, I mean episodes four, five, and six for you Gen Zers. Um, salvation comes through weakness. Salvation comes through weakness. And you see this in different ways sprinkled throughout that original trilogy with just the rebels, right? That's the, they're, they're junky ships, they look like they're about to fall apart before they even get off the ground. Their ragtag, motley alliance that you just wonder how in the world does that come about and hold together. From the number of times that they speak of the odds being so much against them, the refrain that is repeated again and again and again, I've got a bad feeling about this. Weakness. Weakness comes out again, and no more so, no more so than in, in the, the last of the original trilogy, Return of the Jedi, with those furry little heroes, the Ewoks. These knuckleheads 
who somehow take down the mighty galactic empire. Weakness. I got to tell you, as a fan from 1983 forward, I never liked the Ewoks. Never liked them. I would much prefer a company of Wookiees myself. Give me the big, strong, furry ones. The mighty warriors. Not the teddy bears. The teddy bears with the slingshots that somehow take down the mighty galactic. But, but, and this is a sticking point for really any fan. Most fans that I've ever talked to, anything I've ever read. Uh, but it's something of a sticking point. But here's the thing. I think we're, it's just dawned on me just this week. I think all this time, I've missed the point. I've missed the point with this sticking point. Because salvation always comes through weakness. It always comes in the deepest, most profound, meaningful sense. It comes through weakness. And we don't want to be reminded of that. We don't want to have to deal with that. We don't want to have to admit that. And I think, that, frankly, that's why we don't like the Ewoks. And I think we'd much rather see Han, Luke, and Leia save the day. But really, it's not them. It's the, the teddy bears. And it's something what we see here in, in Judges 7. God... In, he shows his strength in weakness. We are saved through in the co- context of weakness. It's what we see here in Judges 7, in this account here with, with Gideon. However much that may chafe against us in having to acknowledge that and admit that and embrace that, but we need to. We so desperately need to. It's so fundamental to the gospel, to our hope that we would know that the Lord shows forth his strength in our weakness. Or if I can just put it this way, just, just, you know, this is where we're heading. The Lord alone can save. That's what we're seeing here. That's what he's impressing upon his people, even at this moment, those thousands and thousands of years ago. The Lord alone can save, and therein he is the only one that is due our trust. He is the only one to whom we can turn, and therein he is the only one due our praise. The Lord alone can save. Now, how do we see this in this text? At least three ways. Um, first, first, in the way he shows himself, in, in the power of our Savior. The power of our Savior. We see this and clearly demonstrate. Secondly, how we see the patience of our Savior. And then finally, thirdly, in the, the persistence of our Savior as well. So yes, three P's, alliteration, to help us as we're moving through this. So first, he shows forth his power, he shows forth his patience, and he shows forth his persistence. And in all of this, he shows he alone is the one to whom we must turn and trust. All right, first, the power of our Savior. I don't know, if we have a slide of those points? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, the power of our Savior. You see this very clearly in verse 2. I read it a moment ago. Let me come back to it now. The Lord said to Gideon, I don't know if you caught this before, but get, get what the Lord says to Gideon from the outset, okay? The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. And basically what happens over the course of this chapter is him showing, yeah, there are too many, and I'm going to keep culling it down. Now, 
think with me, context. If you remember back to chapter 6, so this, this uh, stage in Israel's history, it's, all, it, it's very much part of the cycle that we've been talking about through the book of Judges. There's this uh, enemy force, this occupying uh, nations that have come into the land of Israel, Midians and the Amalekites. And it's, this is a besieged and beleaguered people, the people of Israel. They've cried out, and now, now deliverance is coming. They're on the eve of the great battle, right? And, of course, the way they're thinking, the way you're thinking, the way I'm thinking as the reader, if the numbers are too great for you, if the odds are stacked against you, if you've got a bad feeling about this, what you need are more numbers. Right? Well, surprise. God says the opposite. He says exactly the opposite as to what we would expect and what our inclination might be. Yes, the odds are against you. And yes, you've got a bad feeling about this, and you should. And you're grossly outnumbered, and that's true too. And you need less numbers that I would deliver you. You need less, not more. And so we, we get then, you know, thinking in terms of, of, of why, why would this be? This sounds like craziness, just madness. Well, again, he, he tells us, the, again, verse 2, the people with you are too many for us to give, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So clearly the Lord is well acquainted with our stubborn tendency to, to rely upon ourselves, to credit our credentials, to trust in our resources, what we have to bring to the table, and therein, at the end of the day, when we think we've fixed it, then, of course, our inclination is, well, then, since I did it, then I'm going to trust in myself continually. I'm going to praise myself continually. I'm going to boast in myself continually because I, I, I did it. And, and that's the way, that's our default. That's our that's the human heart. That's the tendency. It's down deep within our DNA. But the deep reality is completely counter to that lie, that folly that we buy into, that we breathe in as, as quickly as we breathe in the oxygen that we, our lungs take in. The, the deep reality is that God alone can save. God alone can save, and so he alone therein is due our trust, due our praise, due our boasting. And he is deeply determined out of love for his people that we would know this. And he will do what it takes in love for his people that we would know this, however painful that might be. However painful that might be because of his love for his people. You think in terms of just how this battle plays out. How do we really see that this really is the Lord and the Lord's deliverance alone? Well, yes, we could talk about, you know, Gideon's as a master strategist and the tactician and the stuff with the, the jars and the trumpets and the torches and, and all that sort of thing. And the timing was brilliant and so clever, and some have tried to make that case, but that's actually the, the point because the point is the Lord did, he set all this up. If it wasn't for the Lord, none of this would have been in place. None of this would have happened at all. And then you look, at, in case you can't see that, let's just look with me at the outcome. How does this play out? Verse 20 
Skipping down to verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, that is to say the enemy army. They, the enemy army, cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So this supposedly crack group of troops that Gideon has assembled in three groups of 100, yeah, they blow the trumpet, they shout the shout, and they wave their lantern, and then what do they do? Stand and watch God do his thing. And that's how they win. This is the Lord. The Lord who brought this victory for his people. This is the power of God at work. This is, this is fundamental to the Christian life that we would know this today, that it is from the beginning and all throughout, but by the power of God at work in our lives. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, which then sets in motion everything else that he has to say in that magisterial letter, Romans 1 verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Not by our cleverness, not by our resources, not by our strength, but by faith. This is how we are saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how the Christian life begins and that's how it continues. You, we, we read of the, the, the character qualities that, that we would want to grow in. For instance, in Galatians 5 where he describes this fruit of the Spirit. Where do those nine character qualities come from? They're not the fruit of Richard or any of us. Fruit of the Spirit. That's how we're changed. That's how, it is in Christ that we are reborn. It is in Christ that this new life comes forth. It is a life of dependency. It's from the start, you're too many. You're too many. A life of dependency. Or, or as Jesus says so plainly to his disciples on the eve before his, uh, just before his betrayal, John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So before we move on to the second point, let me just ask this question. I'm asking myself this. I would just feel like I, we have to, all of us have to ask this question. If, if you look at your life, honestly, <sighs> candidly, and you begin to realize, I don't know how much fruit I'm actually bearing. I'm not really sure how much fruit is actually there. I'm not sure how much change is actually taking place in me. Then perhaps there's a follow-up question that needs to be asked. In whom are you trusting? To whom, in whom are you abiding? Where are you looking? In what and out of whom are you trying to draw life? 
In Christ there is, as the vine, there is fruit, but not in ourselves or anyone or anything else. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, here we see just from the start, the Lord alone is our strength. To him alone we must turn. Let me press on to the second point. We see not just the power of our Savior here. We see the patience. We see the patience of our Savior here as well. So beautifully on display. There in verses 9 through 15, his, his patience to calm the fear of his servant, his patience to stretch the faith of his servant. So, so verses, uh, let's just pick up verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, which is a clue that he is, <laughs> if you are afraid uh, to go against the camp, uh, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Now, you got to figure you have to figure that, that, that yes, uh, Gideon wants assurance. He's deeply wanting this assurance. Now, now he, he and Pura, his servant, go down into the camp, and what do they see? What do they see? Not exactly what would be immediately instilling the great confidence, because what they see is, oh, it really is an innumerable army, innumerable resources that they have here. And yet, in that same context, they also, they, they see that, but then they hear, they hear of this dream, the dream of the loaf of bread that rolls down and knocks down this great tent. And then they hear of the, the interpretation in there, and they know that terror is now about to start sweeping through this army because of this revelation that has that is come, and so the news is going to spread of this dream in there, and they, that, that Gideon and Pura are greatly encouraged, and they take this back to the camp. So the calming, the calming of the man's fear is so beautiful and tender, what you see here with the Lord and working with Gideon. And at the same time, not just the calming of the fear, but the stretching of the faith. So where does this happen? Where does he receive the message? Gideon, put yourself in Gideon's sandals, right? Where would you like to receive the message? You would like to stay in your tent. You would like to stay in your camp, right? You know, a place of safety, a place of security with all your bodyguards around you. What does the Lord say? No. If you want my reassurance, you're going to need to go down into the camp. You're going to need to leave your place of security, go into a place that you find to be incredibly, insanely risky and dangerous, leave the place of stability and safety, and go into the place of risk and danger. That's that's where Gideon hears the reassurance. Not in the place of safety, but in the place of risk. Put it another way, perhaps what we could learn here is that the assurance that Gideon longs to hear from the Lord can only come in the context of obedience to the Lord. The assurance that Gideon longs to hear from the Lord is only going to come in the context of trusting obedience to the Lord. And the Lord is so patient, and he takes the initiative here, 
and the means is shocking and surprising and a bit disturbing all at the same time. So this, you know, this past week is the first, was the first day of summer. So summer, lots of vacations. We get on the road, we travel, road trips, all that stuff. Many of us, if you haven't already, probably will find yourself, you know, your GPS fails you, your map's like, oh, shoot, I didn't know that that, oh, darn it, I, you know, I don't know where I'm going. You're going to stop and have to ask for directions from like a person, right? So old school. But from a person, you're going to have to say, where am I going? Where am I? How do I? And they're going to say to you, sometimes, this might be what you'll hear, you can't get there from here. You can't get there from here. The way you want to do it is not going to happen. The way you want to go is not going to work. You can't get there from here. Surprising means. What I mean to say is simply that's what we're, I think what we're seeing here. We would want to stay in a place of comfort and ease in our stuckness. And the Lord is saying, I want, I want to pour out my assurance, my comfort into your life. But it's going to only come one way, in the context of trusting obedience to me. Okay, before we move on to the third point, there's a question that's worth asking now at this point, And that is... Where do you need assurance in your life right now? Could it be you this moment, this morning, because of whatever, need assurance of your standing and security and status in the Lord's sight because of your failure, right? Because you know how bad you blew it. And you just feel this visceral need for assurance, reassurance of his love for you. Or, or, or maybe it's not because of having a failure. Maybe it's because of suffering. This morning, you need assurance of his purposes in your life, that he's real, that he's good, that he's there. And because of that, you need some assurance. Know that he longs to pour that out into your heart, into your life. But how is it going to come? And why don't you have it? Could it be you haven't been willing to listen? Could it be that you haven't been willing to trust him to go into the camp with Purah, but rather just stay? Could it be that he's calling you to trust him, to hear him, to walk in step with him? And in the context of that, you will hear him. Again, again, the Lord alone is the one who saves. And to him alone we must trust and turn. We see this with his power. We see this with his patience. One last thing, the third of the P's. We see this with his persistence. He is not given up. Like, let's just say, you've blown it, you've blown it, you've blown it. Part one, no. Part two, no. He's not done. There's part three. The persistence of our Savior as well, that we would know these things, that we would know these things. You see this especially in verses three through and I alluded to this earlier, the culling down of the army. 
you know, from 30-something down to, I think, 32, down to 10, down to 300, you're now below 1%. You're now below 1% of the starting point of where, where it began, or they began. And it was already, I think, fourfold outnumbered when, it, when the whole thing began. Now you're down to 1%. 1%. Uh, too many, the Lord says. Now, this culling down takes place and in, 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 it comes about in two different ways. One, I think you could make the case through sensible means. Kind of adds up, kind of makes sense, like the first testing, the first culling down. But then there's a second one. And that's a bit puzzling. That's a bit confusing, a bit surprising. So first, the, the, the sensible one. Verse 3, picking up after verse 2. Uh, now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Well, this, this kind of makes sense. So the, in, in Old Testament law, it's actually in Deuteronomy. I don't remember the chapter, but it's actually in Deuteronomy. There were allowances. There were military exemptions granted for all kinds of classes of different people. Included, this may be surprising, but I wouldn't recommend it today, but including the fearful. If you're scared, you can go home. And that's what you see here. And it was allowed for in Deuteronomy with the Israelite army. And that's, what's being, that's what the Lord is speaking into here in Judges 7. So send the fearful ones home. Well, that, that just kind of makes sense, right? Because fear tends to be contagious. It's like a virus. It catches. So out of concern for morale of the army of the whole, let's cull it down. Send those boys home. Okay, that makes sense. That, that kind of fits with our logic, doesn't it? But what about the next wave? What about the next cut that comes? Well, we see this in, in verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. You've got to figure out what Gideon is. That's his body language at this point. There's still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So, what's the test? This is the great drinking test. It's not a fraternity thing, but it's a great drinking. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So the Lord, it, it, to call it down, he divides them into two groups. Very different in terms of size. He divides them into the kneelers and the lappers. Now, there have been a lot of smart people who have done some less than smart things about why the lappers are somehow the crack troops. You know, like this is the, the A-team to go with, as though this is what qualifies them to be the guys. That's to miss the point entirely. From the very start, and it's repeated all throughout, the Lord is saying, I'm not interested in a certain kind of soldier. It's the numbers I'm concerned about. And for whatever reason, he picks this lapping versus kneeling thing to get it way down to 300. That's the point. That's the point. Don't get tripped up in, oh, well, this is the position of the body, and then they'd be ready, and this is clearly what they're used to, and this is what... No! It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do simply with getting the numbers down. Why? So that at the end of this battle, 
No one of them says, I did it. Now tell my grandchildren what we know. The Lord did it. And you tell your grandchildren about that. The Lord did it. And that's the point. That's the reason. And he is so persistent, doggedly determined that his people, that we, that Gideon, that we today would know this. Stephen read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This was Paul's experience, right? This was the Apostle Paul's experience as he recounts it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just pick up again, read verses 7 and 9 again. Extraordinary what the Apostle Paul says here. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Get it? It's too many. That's the idea. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on, upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is not talking in riddles here. It's a deep, profound spiritual principle that when we are weak, then we are strong. What's going on here in Paul's life is that he had been given this vision. We're not told much about what all that was. But the Lord, knowing the man's heart as he did, also gave him with the vision a thorn. And we're not told much about what that is either. Except that whatever it was, it drove him to Jesus. And that's what he needed. That's what the Apostle Paul needed something to be working continually in his life to drive him to Jesus. And this is not unique to just apostles. We all need to be driven continually to Jesus. Not just once when we sign up. But every day, in everything, all the time. We need to know, and our heart's cry needs to be, when I am weak, then I am strong. Th think with me, Christian. Think back over your life. Think back to the times in which he has shown you your weakness. Think back to the times in your life in which he has exposed you and forced you to reckon with your need of, of a Savior, and it was only going to be Him. Think back to the times in your life when He helped you to see your weakness, and then in His love and mercy and grace, worked even through it. Now, let me ask you this. Would you change that? Would you want Really, would you want to go back and undo that growth process that He took you through? heaven's sake, I hope not. That was his love to you. That was his mercy to you to drive you more deeply into his arms. In our weakness, therein we find his strength. 
there we find his strength. He alone saves, and he wants us to, to know. So our little mighty but small band of uh, Telmarines discussing Prince Caspian this past week in the uh, Inklings Beyond group, uh, in the course of talking about Prince Caspian, uh, this is the second in the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, that C.S. Lewis wrote. Right there towards the very end of the book, there is this scene that captures all of this so, so well. Uh, the great insurrection there in Narnia has been put down. And Aslan has asserted himself, clearly, as the king of the woods yet again. And he calls the rightful heir to the throne, Caspian, to himself. Now, let me just pick up in this dialogue. Welcome, prince, said Aslan. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I don't think so, sir, said Caspian. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. That's Judges 7. That's 2 Corinthians 12. That's Romans 1. I could quote a hundred more chapters if you want to give me some more time. Okay? This is Christianity 101. We never outgrow it. We never outgrow this. So then what do we do? How do I land this plane? Can I just suggest this? We pray a hymn. Not singing this one, sorry. We pray a hymn. Uh, 1872, Annie Hawks comes to her pastor, Robert Lowry, with this poem, this fantastic poem she brings to her pastor. And he recognizes immediately the brilliance of these words. All he does is add a refrain. The next year it was published, and we've been singing it ever since. I need thee every hour. I'm going to read this. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray this hymn. Let's pray this hymn together. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee every hour. Teach me thy will and thy rich promises in me. Fulfill. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Amen.